0: This is Recorded Future, inside threat intelligence for cybersecurity.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Thanks for joining us for episode 27 of the Recorded Future podcast. You have by now surely heard that Equifax, one of the large credit reporting companies here in the U.S., suffered a huge data breach. How bad was it? Well, reports say over 143 million sets of personal information may have been lost on U.S. residents alone, including names, social security numbers, birth dates, addresses, and in some cases, driver's license numbers. So, pretty bad. And the story is still developing. John Wetzel is head of threat intelligence training at Recorded Future, and he joins us today to help make sense of what happened to Equifax how it might have been prevented, and what a breach of this size means for all of us. Stay with us.
0: So Equifax was a very large data breach of presumably uh, consumer records that have been gathered from uh, Equifax's vast trove of information at uh, monitoring credit cards, banks, financial services, companies, Um, anything that you have a credit card, a debit card, a mortgage, a loan, anybody you've ever borrowed money, anything that's ever been exchanged or touched on is what they use. And they basically use a simple identifier, most often your social security number. So the Equifax breach was likely those full pieces of data, essentially all of your financial digital life that was stolen. And this was most likely done through a a new technical exploitation technique called server-side template injection. And the way that works is um, they took advantage of a very common open-source software called Apache Struts, actually Struts 2, and there was a vulnerability in that, which was uh, a 2017-5638 which allowed people to essentially inject this type of uh, template into uh, the web application. What that does is it started uh, being able to allow them to shut off certain preferences and then open up that full web app for a lot of data leakage.
1: So they get access, and then it's simple for them to exfiltrate all this data?
0: So you're an attacker. Yeah. You know that there is a really valuable target like Equifax because they have so much information. They're the hallmark for what you want to achieve. They have full personas pretty much all of the digital transaction information. So you have to ask yourself, how do I attack them? As a attacker, you look at what's already available to me. Many times these types of companies have websites and web applications that are fully open to them. You may not even realize you're on an application. It could just be, look like a form. It could just look like, hey, I'm going through there and I'm asking this thing some questions and it's providing me some answers. Maybe I'm asking it to provide me my entire digital history through an annual credit report. Maybe I'm asking it to protect me by uh, signing up for some kind of service. Well, all of that information gets documented and it's exposed to the public, so they want it there. As an attacker though, I know that behind that is a database and that's what I wanna get to. You see these types of attacks all the time. The most common one that's talked about is a SQL injection. So I know that there is a type of database called a SQL and MySQL behind that. And I use particular strings of characters that I know are gonna make that database go, go a little crazy. This is an extension of that type of attack where you inject a little piece of what looks like you know, code But the database reads that as code, not as just a straightforward answer like, you know, what is John Wetzel's name? And then it executes that code. And because it does, it now dumps groups of information. Maybe it's the full information. Maybe it's only partially the information that's in that database. And that's how you start getting that type of leakage here.
1: So once this happens, once the the bad guys start sucking this data away from Equifax, uh, should alarms have been going off inside
0: of uh, Equifax Central? There's a lot of different answers to that. The core answer is absolutely. But I do understand the challenges as well. Many times in web application security, we think that we have security procedures set up, such as a most common technique is uh, a web application firewall. And what this is, is it allows certain types of behavior to exist and it says for other types, no. We also use things like vulnerability scanning where we're going out there and saying, hey, do, are we exposed to recently critical vulnerabilities? Do we have to stay overnight? Do we have to patch these things? So that's always the continual challenge and struggle. In this case though, this vulnerability was uh, documented as a critical vulnerability by the National Vulnerability Database back in March. Uh, We knew that these types of open frameworks were vulnerable to this type of attack. We also knew that attacks against web applications have been rising. In fact, they're one of the leading attacks that are out there because attackers know behind that web application is a lot of data and that data can be really, really valuable. So there are all of these indications that both external threat intelligence as well as internal monitoring can pick up on. And those things in this case happen to fail. Now, the avenue for that failure was, in fact, this type of very critical vulnerability, but that vulnerability was known. It was very, very well publicized. And many of the most uh, advanced teams actually took very proactive measures to get ahead of that. And then also, once that vulnerability came out and was fully disclosed, protect and defend their networks against it.
1: Uh, Certainly, they've received a lot of criticism for not patching the vulnerability that was known, as you say, for not patching it quickly. But I've heard other people say, on the other hand, um, you know, patching large systems like this um, aren't
0: as easy as maybe perhaps people think it is. The problem with patching large systems is that it's hard enough to do on the individual level. I think many of us have been in front of that computer where... You are sitting there, it pops up with a warning that says, if you don't patch this, your system could start on fire. Do you want to patch it right now or delay 10 minutes? (laughs) I'm guilty of this too, where you just delay 10 minutes because you're in the middle of something. You're never not working now. And so take that problem, multiply it by 500,000, and then spread it throughout a bunch of different uh, users, user groups, machines, servers, and uh, this gigantic infrastructure and then combine that with not just one, but all of the other vulnerabilities which are also rated as critical at that time. And now you have to choose. How do I prioritize my patching on an enterprise scale? The way that you can prioritize that traditionally is by looking at the CVSS scores that are put out by the National Vulnerability Database. Those are the scores that the vendors come out with to say, this is how bad we think this is. The problem with looking at those scores is that they aren't always 100% accurate when they first come out. Vendors could think that something is slightly critical, and then later on find out, no, 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 this is terribly critical. A great example of that was Heartbleed. With this case, not only was the CVSS score very, very high, uh, it was also well known that criminal actors were talking about this, and this fell in line with behaviors that we saw um, both on the deep and dark web, but also leading up to this, six to nine months out, we saw criminal actors saying, hey, how do I get into these web applications? Are we seeing a up-tempo in uh, these type of injection attacks? And we were.
1: Yeah, so let's dig into that a little bit. I mean, you all are in the threat intelligence business. Um, what kinds of things were you seeing uh, specific to this attack, but also more in a general way You know, of, of this, uh, this vertical?
0: The vulnerability that was used in this case was uh, CVE 2017-5638, which is, again, that struts of vulnerability that's based on this open framework. Now, to that line, we've seen attackers utilize these types of open frameworks or these very, very common attack surfaces, whether it's web, common web application frameworks, whether it's uh, Java-based frameworks. We've seen earlier attacks and blogged about them using uh attackers using JBoss and identifying vulnerabilities in that. Um, we've seen uh, attackers try and use and identify th- these tools, especially starting out with very, very simple web shells to attack this common web service. I think we think is a, a website is a website is a website. In this case, the, the Equifax attack used uh, about like 30, I think it was, 30 malicious web shells. Um, and you see different hash values for that. Now, these web shells are not uncommon. We've seen some of them. For example, Jsprat was a tool that has been publicly known to the security community since at least 2011. So it's not like these are new and original tools. It's that the scale and scope of this was done for a target that really had both the financial means and the ability to have put resources and prevented, if not the breach itself, the scale and scope of that breach.
1: I think that's one of the things about that that strikes people, and I think it's a common thing with these cybersecurity breaches, is this sort of disproportionality of it, that with a breach like this, things could have gone a little bit bad and and perhaps been stopped in the midst of it, or things can go basically nuclear, which is what
0: happened. Yeah, the role of security is always to mitigate an attack and reduce the time to recovery. That's always an incident responder's role. In this case, let's say they had been able to breach uh, through the web application firewall, which does not provide anywhere near the level of protection that I think many uh, network administrators think it does. You know, and that's not an unusual case, especially because in this case you have a lot of flaws in uh, not only in these type of vulnerabilities that are published, but also in the implementation of those uh, Java methods that are used in say the libraries there. Attackers know that these type of vulnerabilities exist, and we've seen a lot of adversary research that are targeting these types of vulnerabilities in, in programming languages, um, whether it's Struts or JBoss, anything that's uh, on the .NET, the PHP, Perl, Python, Ruby, Java, all these different types of common frameworks there that are utilized across the board, in, across the web. Because attackers know that X target, let's say a certain type of target is always going to have this type of infrastructure set up for their web applications. Because let's be honest, when we hire people, we hire people that have done things in similar to what we're trying to build. So they tend to build things in the same way. Mm -hmm. As an attacker, I now know that this is a common attack service. If I have the knowledge that Um, X, like let's say Apache Struts is always going to be running on servers that are in this type of business structure. And I identify vulnerabilities or web shells that take advantage of those vulnerabilities um, and exploit them in in a consistent manner, then I can build a very successful career with very little effort on just my knowledge that those are common vulnerabilities that exist across this type of vertical.
1: Let's talk some about the, the incident response and, and some of the, uh, the criticism to Equifax's response to all of this. Certainly, they've been raked over the coals, and many would say justifiably so, for the ways they responded immediately after the uh, revelation of these attacks and, and even up till now.
0: It's always a challenge when you're responding to a large-scale breach, and the very nature of that large-scale breach is always going to be a strategic surprise. That's the first line that intelligence is supposed to eliminate, strategic surprise. We are taken so shocked by this event that we are not prepared both from a resource perspective or from a strategic response perspective to be able to do anything about it. Now, in this case, they should have been. You generally think about the framework of how do I prepare for this big thing of what are my worst case scenarios? Equifax's case, this is in fact their worst case scenario, a large scale breach of the vast amount of data to which the individual consumers have not given them permission to have, or it's essentially tacit through the actions that we take. But they accumulated all this data. They know they're a target. So how do I game through that? Usually what you do in an intelligence process is you sit there and say, all right, I'm going to make certain assumptions and based on that assumption, let's do a tabletop scenario. We run through this scenario, you either do it in house or you have another group or company come in and guide you through that process. I've been through uh, several security conferences where they say, hey, nothing like running this type of scenario and then halfway through, you pull the CISO out because they now have to speak with the press. Washington Post is on the line and wants to talk about this. Those types of things should be practiced and expected. And it's during that time before the storm that you start building those structures, understanding where you need to apply resources, ensuring that you have those communication bridges built between elements such as your uh, lines of business, your PR, your marketing, your security teams, your uh, legal team. So that when you go out there and say, these are the ways that we're going to respond to this, it in and of itself helps mitigate and helps you get up that time to recovery and get that uh, secured. In this case, what we saw is a completely delayed response and then a underwhelming response that came months after the supposed first breach. And we still don't have all the information about what happened rather than having uh, a clear understanding, both from the security research side, from the security community or the consumers at large, knowing what actually is happening and how this is going to be prevented in the future. Many people are stuck in this realm of, well, I can't trust anyone else. Everything out there is going to be compromised. I don't know what to do. And I'm just now living in a state of fear.
1: Certainly with 143 million records uh, perhaps out there, uh, we're talking about 400,000, up to 44 million British residents and, and folks in Canada and other places around the world. Um, I've heard people comment that in terms of personal identifiable information records, this is pretty much all of them. Uh, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, you, you might as well assume that your information is out there. We, if nothing else, with this combined with many of the other attacks, you might as well consider that your information is out there. I can't help wondering, You know, is it time to do better than the social security number as a piece of identifying information?
0: I think there are multiple lessons to be learned from this. And the one that keeps consistently coming up is a nine digit number that secures our uh, digital identity uh, in this day and age is not only inadequate and dangerous, it is irresponsible at a government nation state level. We do need to have Better security around how do we identify? There are countries that we might consider to be Eastern Europe that provide a digital token from the moment that you're born. And that token is used to do everything from transactions to establish identity to vote. These are not impossible standards. They are costly. They do require a lot of infrastructure and they do require momentum and impetus, not only from the security community or the technology communities in general, but also from. The populace, citizens need to realize these are things that are out there that are easy, that would make them vastly more secure, and they need to be applied at state and federal levels. The other side of that is that we see these threats increasing, and because of technology, there's a gap between people understanding what are real threats and what are not. And I think that's the other side of this tragedy. We want people to be informed about the threat enough to realize action needs to be taken. But we don't want people to be in a state of constant fear where now they think everything is, is a danger and a threat. The threat here is that this is exactly what criminal actors want enlarge. large. And that's the idea of if you look at certain criminal forms, these are called fools. This is a full identity. If I have a social security number, I can do a little bit. If I have a credit card number, I can do a little bit for a very, very short amount of time. I think we've all had a fraud alert where some criminal person has tried to use our credit card at some gas station in a state that's you know thousands of miles away. In this case, what we're talking about is a criminal actor not needing to pivot through, say, start with a social security number, pivot to a credit card, and then try and you know hack, do some human hacking where they're calling up a help desk to try and reset a password. They have all of this validated information, and it's really hard to change. You can't change the fact that three years ago you took out an auto loan. It's just there. It's part of your history. It's part of how we validate and that's the other side that I think people have not talked about as much as we need to also consider to changing how we validate and verify our identities from not just the nation state level, but as companies, what are we requiring for people? I think everyone has gone through and knows that the three security questions that come through are usually something like, well, you know, what was your first uh, street that you lived on? What was your dog's name? What place did you get married in? I think that we need to start considering how do we create better security at an enterprise level that helps assist our customers, the people that are providing this information, helps uh, understand where that information is going. It may not remain with just that one organization. Banks sell information all the time. and We need to think as companies, how do we establish things that won't hamper the business but help people protect themselves? Rather than having these common practices, maybe we just make slight changes. Maybe we do things in a in a better way that will help across our institutions make people make better security decisions.
1: For organizations who are looking at this Equifax breach and saying, ooh, that could have been us, um, what advice do you have to put them at
0: ease to help prevent them being the next victims of something like this? To be put at ease, I think, is to be prepared. Hmm. Good threat intelligence, and I really do believe this, good threat intelligence helps you look out ahead in a systematic way and say, what is, might, or is likely to hit me at some point in the future? And you have these structures that are built there that are very well defined, that come mainly from the US government and US military of what's going to happen in this set period, six to nine months out, that I may have to apply resources to to defend myself. From a tactical and operational level, we look at these types of attacks and say, how does we make this relevant to us? Yes, we see that this type of breach has occurred, but maybe we're an energy sector company. Maybe we are in a completely different line of business. How do we make this relevant to us? Well, the first way is we start finding the similarities between not only the type of organization I am, I think it's really easy to think, well, I'm just a, like, I'm a financial organization, so all financial attacks affect me. Well, maybe certain attacks look at banks versus investment companies versus insurance companies. Maybe you're a manufacturer, but it's this is towards automobile manufacturers versus medical device manufacturers. So it's important to understand what type of attacker are we looking at? What is my threat? Number two, what is the infrastructure over which that threat is channeled? In this case, we saw that web applications were that vector. It is not uncommon to, or not unexpected to see that criminal actors would then look at that infrastructure and say, who else is vulnerable to this? Who else is running web applications which may be poorly secured? So from there, I get a couple different actions I can take. Number one, identifying and patching the vulnerabilities which affect those easily exploited, uh, as demonstrated here, um, web applications, Showing up my defenses. The second part of that is identifying the threat actors. You don't have to get down to names and dates, but you can identify the campaigns that are targeting your organizations or those types of vulnerabilities, and then add that as part of your threat mapping, so that when you're sitting there and looking at your full threat picture, you can state, we've seen attackers, even though they have attacked in this surface area, they may migrate to my type of company because we have similar types of information am i looking ahead and saying do we see that happening and that's where intelligence starts you ask a question and you try to answer it
1: our thanks to john wetzel for joining us